This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time, and I pray that you would teach us. Um, I pray that where we need to be confronted in our rebellion, you would do so. Where we need to be uh, comforted in your gospel, you would do so. Where we need to be convinced of your love for us, you would do so. I, I just pray that you would come and that you would use your word which will not return void and it will accomplish its purposes and that you would use me, that you would empty me of me and fill me with you, that I would decrease and you would increase. I pray that you would lead me, that I would be able to stay in step with where you are and that I would love my friends well here tonight, Uh, that all of us would get um, a little more clarity in our understanding of who you are and what your gospel means for our life and that all of us would love you a little bit more, and all of us would be committed to living our lives for you to a little greater degree, that we might find life in our love for you, that we might find life in following you. In your name we pray, amen. Pick up in verse 14. We're gonna talk tonight about discipleship. Discipleship is the idea of following a master. Discipleship is the idea of being called into relationship, of following the one who calls you, of being transformed into his likeness as he teaches you and models for you what his message is. And so tonight is all about individual discipleship. Um, We'll talk about God's call on our lives and what does it mean when he speaks into our lives and calls us into relationship with him. But before we get into that, basically in verses 16 and on, we'll just tackle verses 14 and 15 rather quickly. Um, If you were with us, you know that John the Baptist was the primary character so far in the book of Mark. And John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. And John the Baptist comes before him And the prophecies of the Old Testament talk about John the Baptist coming, that one day he would come and proclaim and make a way for and prepare the people for the Messiah King, the King that would come and establish his rule and reign and his kingdom on earth. And so John comes and does that work, and he has a baptism. It's a baptism for the repentance of sins. It's a baptism where folks confess their sins. It's a baptism where he washes folks, symbolizing their need to be washed by someone from outside of them that there need to be washed in the gospel. And of course, he says, after me is gonna come one who's gonna do this washing by his own Holy Spirit, that I baptize you, I cleanse you, I immerse you, I, I plunge you into water. But the one who's going to come, who is the king, is going to wash you and immerse you and plunge you into himself uh, in relationship and in his work and what he has done uh, for you. So it says in verse 14, now after John was arrested, so we left Jesus last week, 40 uh, 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted um, in spiritual warfare with Satan and and those in subordination to him, his demons. And Jesus was there in the Holy Spirit, in uh, uh, in the wilderness with the presence of the Holy Spirit there and his angels. And uh, they're having spiritual war. And we know from Matthew and Luke that Jesus does not fail in any of these temptations. But indeed, he succeeds for us, and he succeeds and gives us his record on the cross. And so now, John the Baptist was arrested, and it literally says he was handed over. Uh, By this point, John the Baptist is probably dead. Uh, Herod Antipas Antipas has has gotten drunk and and made a faulty commitment uh, to a relative, and he's cut off John the Baptist's head. And so Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and John the Baptist has gone before him, and he has done his chore. He has prepared the way for the Messiah. And Jesus comes into Galilee. And it says that he comes proclaiming the gospel of God and saying. So remember, when John came, he was also proclaiming the gospel. And now Jesus comes and he too is proclaiming the gospel. And it says he's proclaiming the gospel and saying. So what we're about to read out of Jesus' mouth is 
the gospel. That this work that John proclaimed over and over, this this work we're going to find out later in the book of Mark is the work that the disciples proclaim. This is the work that you and I proclaim to one another. This is the gospel. This is not all that it is, but this is certainly, this is certainly a great summary of what we mean around here when we say the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He says the time is fulfilled. This word for time is not the word chronos, which is chronological progressive time, but it's the word keros, and it means that it's an opportune, opportune moment. It's a, it's a critical moment. It's an eternally significant moment. It says it's fulfilled. So all that the Old Testament was prophesying about has been fulfilled in this time where Jesus shows up. All of our heart's longings are fulfilled in this one man who shows up uh, to live on our behalf, to die for us, and then to live uh, in us. So the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And remember, we, we talked um, the very first week we were in the Gospel of Mark that the word gospel means, it's the word euangelion. It means joyful tidings. It means good news. And the currency, um, it, it didn't have religious currency in that day. It was a very um, geopolitical term. It, it was a term of war. It was a term of war where someone, a messenger, would come in in front of the king or in front of the army, and he would stand at the gates, and he would summons the people, and he would announce to them the joyful tidings and the good news of the victory of their king. And he would say to them, you, someone has fought for you. Someone has won you. Someone has given you freedom. That, that essentially is the good news of the gospel right there. It's historic. It's something outside of us. And it's something that completely and radically changes who we are. And so he says that this gospel is what Jesus is proclaiming. And this gospel, because Jesus has won and because he's going to win and because he is winning, he establishes his kingdom. And when it says kingdom, it's not so much talking about a geographic realm as it is talking about a rule and a reign. It's talking about authority. It's talking about the authority of Christ and then he says, repent and believe in this good news. And we'll come back uh, to that later. But when I was, um, before I went to seminary, which is where you go to train to be a pastor in our denomination, before I went to seminary, I was in, uh, I was in a small business. And we serviced a lot of the banks on the Northeast Coast. And, um, you know, at that point, they were called State Street. It was Bank of Boston. Then it was Bank Boston. We serviced Fleet. We serviced Wells, Wells Cargo. And banks tend to merge an awful lot. They, the small banks that we would serve um, back then merged all the time. And someone could, someone could wake up in the morning and they could read uh, in the newspaper or hear on CNN or just know by someone calling their phone or sending them an email that a merger had happened and the bank that they were working for no longer exists. And there would sort of be this global macro proclamation of something that has happened that's going to change their life. And everyone would come into the office, and I was a consultant, an outside consultant from a smaller business, so it didn't really mean a whole lot to me, but these folks would come in to the office, and they would wonder, in this merger, have I been fired? Have I been demoted? Have I been given a parallel move where I'm sort of at the same place in this new entity, or have I possibly been given a promotion? And so what we're looking at here when I say introduction, the call of the kingdom, the call is a word that Mark's going to use. It's very individual. It's very specific. It's Jesus coming and giving you specific instructions as to what this macro global proclamation means. And tonight we're going to talk about this call of the gospel into discipleship. We're going to talk about the fact that it's the priority. We're going to talk about the fact that it's deeply personal. 
We're going to talk about the fact that it's purposed in its pursuit and that it's a pilgrimage, and a lot of times it's a painful pilgrimage. That's what we're going to uh, uncover tonight. So first, it's the priority. Uh, Look back with the text with me in verse 16. He's passing along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew, and Andrew's the brother of Simon, and they're casting their nets in the sea. That's just, he's showing ongoing action. They're just kind of living their life out there. They're just kind of doing what they do. They're in the middle of what they think is going to provide life for them. For they were fishermen. Mark says past tense. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. So again, action. They're engaged in their life. They're doing what they do. They're pursuing life. And immediately calls them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. The call of the gospel is a call that might take you away from family and future. It's the priority. This is not very shocking for us to our ears because family doesn't mean a whole lot and we change careers all the time. But for Mark to say that Jesus shows up, and look at the incredible authority of Jesus. They've never met him before. We actually don't know if they've met him or not. Mark's not really concerned to tell us that. He just says, when the king, the Messiah, shows up and says, follow me, people do it. And so these fishermen, these small businessmen, these entrepreneurs, they just heed Jesus' call like that. They just jump up and follow him. And look at what they leave behind. In this case, they leave behind not just their nets, which is what they would use in the future to catch stuff, but the latter two leave behind their family as well. And you're saying, Ted, that's awfully drastic. Are you sure it's really saying that? Can it not just be that they got up and followed him and those are superfluous details that Mark gives us about their nets and their family? Listen to something Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 when he's talking. Again, listen for the word discipleship. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, hate even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And you're like, whoa. That's a lot. Is he really saying that in order to follow him, in order to be his disciple, in order to be engaged in the work of the kingdom, that we have to hate even our own family and our own lives? And and then if you know anything about the Bible, you could say, but wait a minute. Doesn't it even say you're not even allowed to hate your enemies in the Bible? You have to love everyone, including your enemies. And and of course, Jesus here is engaged in hyperbole, but this is his point. This is his point in Mark chapter one. This is his point in Luke 14. I'm going to be your priority if you follow me. That I want you to so viciously and completely and wholly and freely follow me that it looks like hatred in comparison to all those other loves of your life. That this is the call of the kingdom. If the king has really shown up to bring redemption and to bring reconciliation and to bring reclamation and to recreate everything, and if he's gonna engage us in that war and if he's going to use us in that way, he is saying, I'm going to be the top priority. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to actively hate. It just means in comparison, we're supposed to hate. Jesus is saying this, 
absolutely no conditions. When he comes and he says to Simon and Andrew and James and John, follow me, they don't say, well, you know, I'd really like to follow you, but they don't say, I will follow you if, fill in the blanks. Listen, you you just need to know if you're a believer that the call upon our life is that we don't get to make any negotiations when he calls us. Because let's say, Jesus, I will follow you. Let's just say it this way. If you've been in the church a long time, you need to think in these terms with me, I will joyfully follow you if I have a job, if I have a lover, if I have children, if I have some money in the bank, if I have a successful career where people know me. Now, we may not be so foolish as to actually try and negotiate with Jesus and his call to us, but by the way we live our lives, what are those things that we're holding on to as priorities ahead of him and what he wants to do? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the priority. Because see, here's the deal. If you say, I will follow you if you're not sure if you're gonna follow Christ yet, or if you are a believer and you say, "I, I will joyfully follow you, only if I get to stay with my family, then your real master is not the one who's calling you, but your family. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you have to hate your family. He's saying your love for me and your following of me and your commitment to me and your loyalty to me should be so severe and deep that every other love of your life looks like a hatred. And that's what he's calling these four disciples into. Is Jesus an egomaniac? Is he absolutely crazy? Is he a control freak? No, he's here to give us life. He knows that when we make the main thing something created, we're going to bring death upon ourselves and everyone around us. He knows that when we try and worship and treat as an idol anything other than him, it's going to kill us. And he's saying, I want you to know that I can breathe life into every part of your reality if you'll just trust me to be the main thing. If you will start with a deep, passionate love for me, whether or not you have a lover, I will make your life a joyful occasion. And if you will have me be the main thing in your life, and if you seek life in me, whether or not you have a job, will not be a hindrance to whether or not you're enjoying life. And if you'll have me be your top priority. Whatever those things are you care about, I will let you enter into those circumstances to have them or to not have them with joy and with vibrancy and with worship. So first, it's the priority. Second, it's personal. Look at this. Look back at verses 17 and 18. What does he say to our friends, uh, Simon and Andrew? He says, follow me. It says in verse 18, they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 20, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Jesus is so radically different from what's going on in Jerusalem. First, it's it's incredibly shocking to know that Jesus says, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And then the next word is that he goes into Galilee. That's incredibly shocking. And the reason for that is this. In the Old Testament, the words kingdom of God, they don't show up anywhere. 
But there was this idea, this belief, and this hope in the New Testament that one day a king was going to come and he was going to establish a righteous, merciful, just, eternal kingdom. And out of that kingdom, people were going to have life. And so for about 400 years, from 400 BC to the day that Christ is born, there is this tradition growing in Jerusalem. There's this enterprise in Jerusalem of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they are there and they are working really hard on trying to figure out what they have to do in order to get God's kingdom to come. And so in Jerusalem, the whole idea of the Pharisees is this idea that ultimately the kingdom of God is dependent upon God showing up. But the prerequisite to him showing up is our obedience and our righteousness. And it's sort of this matching fund idea. You know, when you're raising money for something, you'll get a big donor to come in and say, I'll match every donation up to a certain amount. And so the Pharisees were living off of this idea that if we could just get our obedience and our righteousness up to a certain level, then God will will have to come and he'll have to establish this kingdom of righteousness and mercy and justice and prosperity and everything's gonna be great. And so the shock is that when Jesus comes and says, I'm here and the kingdom is at hand and then he goes into Galilee and he starts hanging out with these rebellious disrespected fishermen. And he says, it's not about what you bring to the table. It's about what I bring to the table. And it's not about what you can stack up as your merits and behaviors. It's about who you are in me. And I know you haven't been asking for me. I know you haven't been looking for me, but I've been looking for you. And you don't bring anything to the table in the gospel. You have everything you need based on the one you're walking with. It's deeply and utterly personal. He's so radically different than what's going on in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there's no scribe, there's no Pharisee. We have no rabbi. We have no record of any rabbi walking up to any human being and saying, follow me. Of course, there were students that studied under the rabbis, but the students that studied under them were the ones that pursued the rabbis. And they were willing to commit to studying in the temple all day long while their friends were out playing, fishing. And they were the ones whose parents would pay for them to be there. And they would also not pay for them to be there. They would lose the income of that son who could be out in the field working. And Jesus is just radically different. And while they're in the temple, it's not so much trying to figure out how to follow God, but it's trying to figure out how to follow God's way and how to articulate it and how to box it and how to phrase it and how to fence it and how to figure out how to follow these sets of ideas that have come out of our head And Jesus said, it's not about you following the ideas that come out of your head. It's about you following me. It's deeply, deeply personal. Jesus is saying, not only will I let you have something else over me in terms of priority, I will not let you use me. I will not let you manipulate me. I I often have to repent to Trisha because sometimes I'll say to her, I love you. And what that means is, I love the way you make me feel. I love what you can do for me. I love how I feel when you love me. I often have to repent of seeing Trisha as a means to an end instead of an end in itself that ought to be just enjoyed and studied and loved. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem. They're waiting for a king that can come and bring them to a particular end that they want. And Jesus shows up and says, nope. I won't be used like that. I'm going to be the end of your pursuits. 
So it's, it's the priority, it's, per, it's uh, personal, it's also purposed. What is inherently involved in the phrase, follow me? It means he's going somewhere. It means he's going somewhere. He does not say, I'll come to you and I'll be a genie in the bottle or I'll be a good luck charm. He also does not say, come to me and we're gonna stand still and just veg out for a while. He says, I'm going somewhere and I want you to follow me. It's very, very purposed in its pursuit. You say, but yes, Ted, what about Matthew eleven twenty eight? Matthew eleven twenty eight very clearly says, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden and something and I will give you rest. The very next line, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is what is the apparatus that, that yokes animals together while they're carrying something. And what he's saying, he's saying, we're gonna yoke ourselves together and we're gonna carry something, but it's gonna be so amazing, it's gonna feel like rest. And this is a point of application for us tonight is to remember that Jesus always finds us on his way to someone else. Jesus' mercy always shows up in our lives on its way to someone else. That Jesus comes and finds us in his grace and forgiveness on his way to give someone else grace and forgiveness through us. That he comes and he finds the first two fishermen. You see this? And then in verse 18, 19, it says, he goes a little farther and he sees more fishermen and he says, follow me. Jesus is walking around gathering people on the way to other people. Look, look uh, over at Luke chapter two, verse 13. This is the call of Levi or the call of Matthew. See if you see some parallels here between discipleship and calling and the kingdom. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them and he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. So Matthew or Levi is a tax collector and he rose and he followed him. See some parallels? And then as he reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. Here's the point. Jesus goes and gets Levi so that he can go get other tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't just go and say, Levi, I'm gonna hang out with you and let's just try and make your life as swell as possible. And he also doesn't say, just come to me and we're just gonna chill out in the wilderness. Like, no, we're on a mission. We're going somewhere. If you're gonna come be with me, it's because we're in pursuit of the lost. We're in pursuit of those places that lack justice. We're in the pursuit of those places that need mercy. We're taking the gospel proclamation of forgiveness and redemption to wherever we can go. So he's saying, I want you to come and to follow me as we go out and give this peace to others. And this is exactly what he says they're going to do. He says, and I will make you become fishers of men. I'll make you become fishers of men. The Sea of Galilee is, is northeast of Jerusalem down here where this whole enterprise is going, where they expect the Messiah to show up. And he's way up here in no man's land, hanging out with Israelites way up here. And he's hanging out up here and on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee is this beautiful, beautiful region that's this quite below sea level, but it's actually very nice. Um, it's this nice, beautiful um, 
The, the shore is, is, is not rugged and, and, and drastic and sharp like the Jordan River, but it's this nice, pleasant, rolling uh, shore. And so there's at least six, the archaeologists have discovered at least 16 port cities that are along that northwest corner. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's in uh, these port cities, and he's just walking up through the coast, and he's gathering people to go with him. And he's taking people into their immediate circle of friendships and relationships to take his gospel to a new set of people. And so he uses language that's very familiar to them that's not so familiar to us. And he says, uh, I'm going to make you uh, fishers of men. You were fishermen, but now I'm redefining you. And you're like, what is going on there? What is he possibly talking about? Well, the first thing you have to remember in Hebrew symbolism and in the ancient Near East, the sea is the place of chaos. It's the place of death. It's the place of coldness. Only the bravest of men would be fishermen. Only the bravest of men would actually go out in a boat and fish. The first guys he picks up here, uh, Simon and Andrew, it says they were casting a net. It literally says they were throwing around a net. And it's like, it's like a net that I fish with, although I can't think of what you call it now. But basically it's circular and it has weights on the ends. And the ones that I've used, you, you toss them out there and it opens up into a parachute and it lands and the weights take it down. And then the ones I've used, you have a rope where you pull the rope and it tightens it up around it and you drag in all these fish. Well, the rope part is a rather recent invention, but that idea of throwing a circular net out into the sea and having the weights carry it to the bottom is, is, is what's going on here in verse uh, 16, when he says they're casting a net into the sea. And what would happen? They would use this kind of net when they're on the shore. They would cast a net as far as they could in the sea, and then the fishermen would swim down, they'd gather up all the weights together, and they would pull it back onto shore with all the, with all the fish. And then if you used a boat, you would use a drag net, where you would just drag a net along and you would gather it together because you can't go down to the bottom in the, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's like finding Nemo. You know the very end where I don't remember which one it is. It's, I think it's, who is it? Dory? Stuck in the net? My wife doesn't know. She's doing laundry while I'm watching Nemo. Anybody want to help me? doesn't matter. You remember, right? So Nemo found his dad and, and, and Dory, I think is her name. They've, they find Nemo and then this net at the fisherman place catches them and starts to take them up. And you have all these fish in there going to their doom and their peril. And Nemo organizes the fish to swim down. You remember now? Swim down, swim down, swim down. And the, it breaks. Thank you. I have two people that have watched Finding Nemo. <laughs> this is the point of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there are folks caught in death and slavery. And I'm going to teach you how to be the kind of person that finds life in me and goes to them to give them life. And we're going to go and we're going pr- to preach release to the captives. We're going to go and give life to those who are dead. And we're not going to catch fish anymore. We're going to go catch human beings. That's what Jesus is saying. That is the purpose of their discipleship. I would say that we don't tend to, to feel, we, we, we don't tend to feel any obligation. I know that I, I rarely feel an obligation to understand that Jesus has come to me on his way to someone else. But I think this passage is teaching us that to the extent that we can begin to understand that Jesus comes to us on his way to someone else, as, as soon as we begin to move out with him and follow him, our relationship with him will become much more personal. And when we taste him, and when we see him, and when we feel him, and when we know him, it will make sense that we should make him the priority. 
because then we'll know life. So not only is he the priority, not only is it personal, and not only is it purpose, but last but not least, it's a pilgrimage. What I explained to you there, and if I was a better preacher, I could have probably explained really well and got you actually, actually quite excited about this work of being involved in the kingdom and being a disciple in the kingdom. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about bringing sight to blind people. And we're talking about bringing the ability to hear to people who are deaf. And we're talking about the ability to give life to people who are dead. And you're like, that's exhilarating and exciting. But at the same time, the, the task is so, is so daunting and it's actually very damning. Because I feel so guilty. <laughs> So what can you do for me? Someone who's excited by the call but feels guilty in their rebellion. Go back. Let's look at what God is doing and let's look at what he calls us to do. Verse 17, follow me and I will make you, depends on what translation you have of the Bible, it should say I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is saying in our calling that he is going to gradually and developmentally and in a process transform us into the kind of people that can bring life to dead people. He's making a promise. This is an amazing gospel promise is that I will make you to become fishers of men. So that's what God's doing. Let's look back at what we're supposed to do. Verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. You don't have to know much about Greek, and, and I don't really care if you know any, but these two words are present imperatives. And this is what a really smart uh, woman said about this text that I, I wish I was this smart. But she said, This is living a life of repentance and belief as opposed to momentary acts. That when a verb is used in the Greek language as a present imperative, it, it's supposed to mean an ongoing action. Christianity 101, if you're trying to figure this out, if this thing is new to you and you feel like Jesus has walked into your life and he said, follow me, and you're like, why do I feel like he has so much persuasion and authority in my life and he's messing with me? This is Christianity 101. Repent, believe, follow. Make a mistake. Repent, believe, follow. Wake up 48 days later realizing that you've been living for yourself for 48 straight days. Repent, believe, follow. What is repentance? Repentance is this idea that I am going to change my mind about what's gonna bring me life. That I am going to change my mind and say these created things cannot bring me life. And part of repentance is the confession of sin where you say I'm going to confess the absolute rebellion and the offense that it is that I tried to find life here instead of in God. And belief and faith, they're the same word in the Bible. Belief is a noun, faith is a verb. They're the exact same word. Repentance and faith. Faith is the idea that God forgives me for my rebellion, that he saves me from it, and that he is going to change me into being more human. And then I follow after Jesus with joy. Every, and I won't say every, because I went to the Coldplay concert on Friday night and this did not happen Saturday morning. But most mornings of my life, I wake up and one of the very first things I do after I get coffee in me is I just sit there and I ask Jesus to show me where I lived the day before as if something other than him was gonna give me life. And when he reveals it to me, I, I repent. I say, this is not going to bring me life, you are. 
and I confess this sin to you, and I believe that you're going to forgive me, that you have forgiven me. I believe that you couldn't love me anymore or any less. I believe that you're wild about me, and I believe that you're going to change me. This week, I, we were laying in bed one night, and I, I, the Holy Spirit was telling me, pray with your wife. And I was like, I'm going to try and go to sleep. And I, I just felt like God was telling me, pray with your wife. I mean, his life has been so busy. You guys have been rather prayerless. I want you to pray with her. And so as a wimp, I said, is it your turn to pray? Next thing I remember, it's five o'clock and I'm waking up. I get up and I get some coffee in my system and I sit there and I say, all right, Jesus, where did I live yesterday? As if something could bring me life other than you. And he said, you thought sleep was better than praying with your wife. I repented. I said, you're absolutely right. It did not give me life. I would have found more life obeying you and praying with my wife. But I believe that Jesus lived the kind of life where he would have prayed with his wife if he had one. And then Jesus dies for me on the cross so that I can be forgiven and I can be treated with mercy and grace and unconditional love. And I believe your gospel and I'm gonna follow you today more wholeheartedly because of this grace and because I now know that not praying with my wife is not going to bring life. Another morning I woke up and I said, Jesus, show me where yesterday I, I did not live as if you were enough for me. And he pointed me to a, a relationship I have with somebody that's not in here where I was very manipulative, I was very deceptive. I tried to call it shrewd, but it wasn't shrewd, it was sin. And I, I, I had to sit there and think about it. I was like, why in the world did I do that? I thought that if this person liked me, my life would be worth living. And so I lied to them. I said, Jesus, I repent for that. And I want you to forgive me for that. And that did not bring me life. It brought me death. And you know what I'm gonna do today? I'm gonna follow you because you're the only one worth following. If you're new to Christianity, this is Christianity 101. Repent believe, and follow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time and we thank you um, for your word. I, I, I'm so thankful that your grace is never ending. Your love is so unconditional. I'm so thankful that you don't give up on me or us. I'm so thankful that this, this is a place where you're building your kingdom and you're spreading your rule and reign and you're establishing your realm of righteousness and goodness and peace. We pray that you would come and you'd come quickly and that you would call us into action and you would enable us to follow you and enable us to wholeheartedly pursue life with you. In your name we pray. Amen.